Please listen carefully. V production. Hi, I'm Randy Cohen. I teach finance and entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School. And I sit on the board of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm just the blind guy who decided to do a podcast. I have retinitis pigmentosa, a degenerative condition of the retina. Here on the Dangerous Vision Podcast, we get a chance to talk to people who have something interesting to say about visual impairments and blindness. It was devastating, and if it isn't, you're probably in some stage of denial. I don't know how to interview people, right? I'm just like a professor. Oh my god, you're a mother and you're blind. I think that has a really big impact when it comes to blindness. And talking to Randy this week is Peter Sagel. For 20 years, his gift of gab and wicked sense of humor is entertained and educated on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Is it going to be a good story? It's going to be a good story. Go do it. But his running shoes brought him to the blind community and taught him one valuable lesson. And then I had this chance to guide for someone, and I realized one way to restore some sense of purpose to what I was doing was to literally do it for somebody else. So, David, are you you recording? We're recording. All right. Everything's good. Um, All right. So I'll just clear my head for a few seconds. Welcome to the Dangerous Vision Podcast. Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the Dangerous Vision Podcast here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I uh, really, really appreciate it. Well, so you're, you're, you're kind of a renaissance. Tell, tell me about the renaissance method. You write books, you write screenplays, obviously the radio show. Um, well, why don't we start by talking a, a little about, wait, wait, don't tell me, because, you know, who knows, we, we may have people listening who uh, don't, you know, listen to the show every single week of their lives. So, so do you want to talk How a little bit? I know it, it seems like nobody could be that insane, but it's a big world. It is. Um, Wait, wait, don't tell me, which is the show I posted for NPR for, oh gosh, 22 years now, is a weekly quiz about the news of the week that is really just a comedy show about the news of the week disguised as a quiz, mm-hmm. which is not a, not something that people, everybody understands, even people who have been listening to it for a long time. <laughs> we don't care about this quiz. We just, we're like, we, it's just an excuse to make jokes. Yeah. And so basically, we're the hour a week where uh, NPR lets its hair down. I say that metaphorically because most of us are bald. (laughs) Um, And people seem to enjoy that. I I think it has to do with how serious... how serious uh, the news tends to be, or more to the point, how serious NPR listeners tend to be. And, and we came along in the same way that, that uh, Car Talk did uh, before us. Uh, we overlapped for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and give people a moment of levity. Uh, and I think particularly people enjoy us being silly, stupid, profane, and rude, mm-hmm. which is not something that NPR usually right. does. Uh, the the uh, the metaphor I use is you know the old medieval I, uh, festival idea where the positions are reversed and the fool gets to be king and the king gets mm-hmm. to be fool just for one day a week well one day a year rather yeah. well in our case one hour a week. NPR becomes stupid the, uh, and people just need it. It's uh, it's really, you know, I was reading uh, Mark Lewison's book about the early days of the Beatles, which I, I uh, highly uh, recommend. And uh, and unfortunately, I got to the end of it. And at the end of the book, like they've just released Please Please Me, which, you know, early in the book as they're getting together, you know, they're, they're doing my Bonnie lies over the ocean and stuff, you know. 
it's it's uh it's it's interesting to read the history but when you get to please please me which is a you know truly like stunningly good song and must have just blown everybody's uh uh heads open at you know to be released as early as it was you're like great i want more i want more and then the book ends and i'm like okay ready to read you know two because i know it's a i know it's a three-part series and then i read like like the second book's coming out in like 2022 um but anyway he one of the things you know of course that the beatles were uh that was quite significant about the beatles was their humor and he was sort of talking about places that it came from and there was an early uh, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, fake news show. I guess the term fake news means something else now. So uh, comedy news, comedy news show uh, that was on in England in, I don't know, at least the early 60s, maybe even the very late 50s. And it was called That Was the Week That Was, right? And, and what I love about it, the name is that the, the, the hipsters in England called it at the time TW3, <laughs> which is exactly what we would call it now. <laughs> that show briefly came to the U.S. They tried it for one season. Mm. I think it was NBC. And as their musical satirist, mm-hmm. they hired a Harvard professor, oh, former Harvard professor, Tom, Tom Lehrer. Tom Lehrer. Amazing. And, um, and the songs that Tom Lehrer wrote for that uh, show, that was the week that was, or TW3, and it's one year, became the basis of his most successful album, That's which I think was called That Was the Year That Was. That's so interesting. Uh, I did not know that that was where that material about, you know, the, came from. The, the Werner von Braun and yeah. all the, you know, the, those songs are all from that. Uh, all from and, that and, and, you know, I'll just say my, my teenage kids adore Tom Lehrer just as I did uh, as a teenager. It's it's amazing how... how you're, 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 you're a geeky guy who went to Harvard. Of course you love Tom well, Lehrer. Well, that's right. But, 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 I, I, I'm, but what's impressive is that then, you know, 30-some, 40-some years later that, the, uh, that the, the children of the geeky guys who went to Harvard also... Uh, still, and by the way, you know, he's still he still lives he's a few blocks he lives a few blocks from from uh where i sit but by reputation he's uh you don't really want to like go knock on his door and tell him how much you like his music like he, he doesn't right. appreciate that so much he's he's uh he, he enjoys the quiet life you know yes it's sort of a shame that he, he just because he stepped away at the peak of his fame and and just you know decided to well his joke was that he felt that once i think his joke was uh, satire became uh obsolete once henry kissinger won the P- nobel peace prize <laughs> <laughs> you know that, that that is a great joke and you can imagine the reprise of that joke for for our current era i mean it it, it literally somebody somebody just sent me uh, a joke that was a it was a meme uh satirizing our president and it was and and it was and it was a, a friend of mine who's uh, politically conservative so he was trying to you know kind of be um uh be fair-minded you know by by making fun of his own guy and uh and he uh except it was something that trump had actually done um, like, like it was supposed to be satire, but, but it's not, but as you said, just some things are very, very difficult to satirize. Right. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so just throw that in a little bit of trivia, a little bit of historical trivia for you and your listeners about that was the week that yeah. was. Anyway, we're talking about the Beatles and that was the week that was. Yeah. Well, just the history, <laughs> just the history of, um, of, of comedic news. So did you set out to do comedic news? And if so, did, were there specific, uh, inspirations that got you thinking along those lines or, or, or you no, know, well, tell I, me I the origin story. No intent uh-huh. of, uh, um, of ever doing this for a living. Yeah. Uh, my career is entirely accidental. Mm-hmm. I have been a playwright and screenwriter. Uh, I was living in New York at the time. This mm-hmm. was the mid nineties, late nineties when I got an offer to be a part of this new NPR quiz show. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. Basically that sounds like fun is usually the last thing I say before I've done any number <laughs> of crazy <laughs> things in my life. Mm-hmm. And that was one of them. And, uh, I auditioned for this radio show back in 1997 was on the first broadcast as a panelist <laughs> in 1998. They offered me 
role of host about a month or so later, and I've been here ever since. So did they have rotating hosts at the beginning, or yeah, was there somebody else? And gentlemen, who, and it just, the show was not, let's put it mildly, great. It was <laughs> not good, I think is the technical term. It was uh-huh. bad. And there were a lot of problems with it. Um, and we were working out those problems in, you know, on the air nationally, although at the time, just not very many stations. Yeah. Um, and uh, it needed a lot of work. And one of the things the producers decided they needed to change was the host. And they felt if they changed that, they could maybe get to work on everything else. And that's ultimately what happened. They hired me as the host. I came on. We started reworking the show, finding new people to be on it, one of whom, Adam Felber, came on to replace me. And uh, the show eventually became what it is today, which is, I believe, the single most popular hour on public radio. All right. Very nice. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. They, um, and so what, so, so was it, um, but were you, were you going for, for humor from day one? I, I, I apologize to say that I did not listen to those, uh, no, those no, early I don't episodes. Blame you. It was quite bad. Um, <laughs> uh, the, um, the show always was what it was supposed to be. It, it, we always wanted to do a quiz about the week's news. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you about a really important meeting that I think is really being the start of the show. Mm-hmm. So like I said, the show was in trouble. And I came out to Chicago and I sat down with the producers in the show who had been working on it and had been struggling with it and trying to make it work. And I said, you know, we have a chance to sort of reboot it. Um, can we, uh, should we try to do something that we calculate NPR listeners will like based on what we understand of NPR listeners. Should we ask difficult questions about the week's news and allow them to answer it and win prizes so they can feel smug about themselves? Yeah. Or should we just do whatever the hell we want until they cancel us? Mm-hmm. And we all did whatever the hell we wanted until they canceled us. Yeah. And 22 years later, they still haven't canceled us. Nice. And that's really it. We just amuse ourselves. We just try to make ourselves laugh. Uh, if we're in a meeting talking about the news and somebody says something that cracks up the rest of the room, then we write it down and I get to say it to a national audience uh, at the end of the week. It's that's a, it, all it's about. It's just about being funny. It's a, and, it's, um, it's a good feeling. I used to, when I first got this job, because I didn't, what's the word? I didn't ever plan on it. Mm-hmm. I, um, I really, I uh, put it this way. I had a little trouble adjusting my self image from serious artist writer who someday would win an Oscar Pulitzer Nobel, or maybe all three mm-hmm. to guy who makes fart jokes on public radio, right? right. Radio clown. Uh, <laughs> little change. <laughs> and, um, what I've come to realize over the years is that making fart jokes on public radio in certain circumstances, such as the circumstances we're all living in right yeah. now, yeah. Uh, is a really valuable thing to be doing. People, right. you know, Pulitzer Prize winning plays, you know, those are nice, but right. you know what people really need? Some fart jokes over we, the weekend. You know, you That's know, my, what's going to help them get through the next week. My, my brother. So I feel, I feel I've gone from feeling vaguely ashamed to being extremely honored that this has become my role as yeah. sort of a, 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 a national, you know, a, a, a national fool for, for, for everybody's amusement one hour a week. I, I think you have much to feel good about. You know, my, my brother had a great line about this years ago. He was talking about uh, Ben Stiller being on The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was hosting it. And, you know, they've worked together on a million things and, and you know, we're old friends uh, from from Comedy Circuit on up. And he said it was you just got this weird sense that each of them was kind of jealous of the other because Ben Stiller's been in like eight of the 11 biggest grossing movies in the history of the world. Right. And John Stewart, you know, started out as a comedy actor and, you know, and, and all that. And yet at the 
same time, John Stewart was like he was like controlling the freaking national discourse. And Ben Stiller's from this, you know, very um, politically active family and everything and, and obviously really cares about causes and doing the right thing. And, you know, so he's sort of sitting there saying this guy matters and I'm I'm kind of a jokester. But you could see Stiller, you know, Stewart thinking this guy's a huge movie star and I'm on late night cable and uh, room for room for all both 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 heroes, you know, <laughs> Um, so, um, let me ask you about, uh, how do I say, like, since I'm talking to somebody who's involved with the news and comedy in 2020, like there's all this, uh, sensitivity in the world, right? So a lot of people who try to be funny feel, uh, constrained by what they're allowed to say and, and worries about that subject. And then at the same time, people discussing the news, there's all this controversy about, uh, sort of the question of, um, of, uh, of, uh, of bias and, and all those. And, and so it kind of feels like you're kind of, uh, hemmed in in a lot of directions in terms of of areas areas you can touch on or at least i know a lot of people feel this because do you really feel like you just say whatever you want at all it's all good uh or or is it something you have, have had to be conscious of and and has it actually changed or has it always been true and people just always think whatever's going on now they they invented well it's a complicated question and i have a, a complicated answer excellent um on one level i get to say whatever i want uh, NPR has never, ever stepped in and said, you can't say that. You can't express that opinion. You can't make that joke. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, there was a thing like a year or so ago where some, some stations in Southern or conservative markets were worrying that their listeners would be offended by our constant making fun of the president. Mm -hmm. and the president of NPR said, shut up. They're a comedy show. They can say what they want. Mm -hmm. nice. So again, no pressure from above to censor ourselves, change our message, whatever. However, at the ver at the same time, we, myself, my colleagues, my producers, my, my fellow writers, we're very mindful of what we do. And it's related to what I said a moment ago about being that respite in the week of increasing unpleasantness. Mm -hmm. There's enough anger mm -hmm. in this world. There's enough condemnation. There's enough, for lack of a better word, hatred. Mm -hmm. going on. I mean, I'm on Twitter way too often and Twitter seems to be a machine just to make people angry and upset. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so much of our media culture is also that. Um, and we feel that if we have any role to play, our job is to give people a break from that. Mm -hmm. So we don't shy away from making fun of people. We do that all the time. Yeah. We make fun of President Trump all the time. We make fun of all kinds of people all the time. But we never do it to prove a point, and we never do it out of malice. And that, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. So let me put it that I guess what I'm saying is, let's say that one day I decided to do uh, the sort of thing that sometimes uh, the late night TV hosts do, which is to be very serious for a moment. Right. Right. A very special and episode. And say, Before we start the jokes, I just want to say that I think this thing that president Trump did is terrible and it's awful. And it mm -hmm. just shows whatever. Let's say I wanted to say something like that. Mm -hmm. Well, what my colleagues would say to me, if I said to them, I want to do this. And there was a time, by the way, way back when, when I did want to do that. Mm hmm. They would say to me, Peter, what good does that do? That's not what we're here for. We're not here to let people know that they should be upset. We're here to give people a good time. Does that give people a good time? Mm -hmm. 
And I'd have to say, no, that's not, not what it's for. I'm not trying to give them a good time. I'm trying to make them upset and angry and aware. And then they would look at me and say, you know, that's what we're saying. That, 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 that's the reason not to do it. So we, you could call it self-censorship, I guess, mm-hmm. but what it really is, is, is a devotion to our purpose and serving our audience in the way that they want to be served. And there's also kind of a, a challenge to it, to, to do, especially these days, uh, to do material about politics without seeming angry mm-hmm. and without simply appealing to the audience's anger. We have a word around here we use in meetings when we're talking about material and we call it clafter or a clapper. (laughs) And what we mean by that is something that sounds like a joke. Mm -hmm. People react to a joke as if it were a joke, but it's not really a joke. It's just we're playing yeah. to people's prejudices. Right. Bill Maher, if you excuse me, does this all the time. Right. Donald right. Trump, what a moron. Yeah. And everybody claps and yeah. laughs. Exactly. That's the, not the, funny. the, the, the not virtue signaling, uh, virtue yeah, signaling thing. A, yeah. It's virtue signaling. It's, it's just appealing to prejudice. It's just ingratiating yourself. It's not interesting. It's not fun. And it's not what we think our audience really needs from us. So we don't do it. The, um, it, it's, um, uh, I, you know, I, 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 when I think about, you know, I, I sort of imagine, uh, imagine having a job like yours. And what I think to myself is, uh, that, that basically I would, I would share your attitude be like, you know, just want to, want to entertain and make just a great show that people enjoy and love. You know, if I could make a joke that would change people's view of climate, of the climate issue just a little bit so that we solve that problem like one month earlier, you know, I could save more lives than all the doctors in, in our Harvard class combined. <laughs> and I don't know, do, 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 do you ever, do you ever think that angle or, or do you just say, can't go there? Uh, that's another that thing I've learned. That way. And, 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 me, and let me, and what I mean by that is that I don't think, let me put it this way. Use your example. There is no joke in the world, no series of jokes in the world. <laughs> that would ever solve the climate crisis, Mm. right? Because you know why the climate crisis is really, really serious Mm -hmm. and joking about it doesn't make it better, nor does it inspire people to go out and make it better. It gives people a relief maybe Mm -hmm. of the depression and misery they might be feeling about it. So the next day they can get up and go do something serious. But I, having done this for a long time, really believe firmly that satire comedy has no real world effect. Interesting. The actual real change is done by serious people doing serious work about serious things. And that's not what we do. Um, in fact, there is an argument. Um, sometimes I think about this, that the kind of satire that we do is actually counterproductive. Because if you think about the old expression, you can either laugh or you can cry. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe sometimes you should be crying. Right. Uh, and, uh, and maybe we're distracting people sometimes from how serious things might be uh, because we're making jokes about it. It's something I think about, but I still believe firmly that I ain't ever going to change anything except I might change people's mood. And that's plenty. Mm. Well, so since you mentioned serious things and since a lot of the listeners might be thinking, wait, is, is, is this guy Peter blind? Why, why the hell is he on this podcast? Um, and, and many of our guests are not blind, but they have a connection uh, to the subject of blindness uh, because, you know, otherwise I'd just be in competition with you and all the like truly talented people who, uh, uh, you know, who do interview shows. So I have to have a niche. And um, so uh, why don't you uh, tell us a little about, well, there's, there's sort of three topics uh, from the most serious, well, from the 
the le- from the least serious of the three, which would be which would be tell us about running, which obviously is something that's uh, that you're really passionate about. And then the medium serious is your work in uh, helping uh, blind people run marathons and and so forth. And then of course to the most serious of uh, the the events of the Boston Marathon uh, a few years ago, bombing and everything. So you take them in any order you want. You're a professional. Well, uh, okay. Uh, as people may know, uh, I don't talk about it a lot on my radio show, but I became a pretty serious long distance runner around the time of my 40th birthday, which is now 15 years ago. And much to my surprise, because I was not an athletic, uh, shall we say, not an athletically talented person. Um, when I was growing up, what happened next struck me as a huge surprise. The last thing in the world I expected, but I became pretty good at it. Um, I qualified for Boston marathon. I ran that uh, a few times twice as a qualifier. I did other things that I never thought I could do, including running marathons pretty quickly. Um, and it became really important to me and, and kind of a central figure of my life, uh, rather essential portion of my life. And I need to plug it. I just wrote a book about it, came out last year, called uh, The Incomplete Book of Running, which is about my running career and how it affected and how it helped me in a surprising way when other things in my life uh, went pear-shaped, as they like to say in Britain. Um, So that book is out there. If people want to hear what I have to say about running, it's there. But the, the book starts with something you alluded to, which was uh, the first time that I ran the Boston Marathon as a guide for um, a blind runner. In this case, near, uh, William Greer was his name, is his name. And he's still around and still running, uh, still running, um, still running marathons. And uh, it was arranged by um, uh, Team with a Vision, a guy named Josh Warren, who was in charge of it, he just called me up or he tweeted at me. And uh, he said, you want to come run the Boston Marathon as a guide? And I'm like, okay. And the reason I was sort of willing to do that on short notice was, among other things, uh, my marriage was falling apart and I kind of needed reasons to get out of the house because I wasn't particularly welcome there. And the second reason maybe was more ultimately important, which is a year or two before, this was, t- this was 2013, not to give away the ending, but a year or two before I, uh, had run, I had set out to set a PR in the marathon and I devoted myself to a lot of, t- a lot of time, a lot of effort. And I did it. I, I, I ran a very quick marathon, beat my PR by 11 or 12 minutes and was very happy. But after that, I kind of lost steam. I had done this thing and I didn't know what was next. I just, I was like, you know, uh, what do I do now? Do I run an ultra? I mean, all of a sudden it felt kind of like I had done it and therefore what's next? Do I just keep running marathons just to collect medals? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And then I had this chance to guide for someone and I realized one way to restore some sense of purpose to what I was doing was to literally do it for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Uh, and what I like to say about that marathon that day is it was the easiest marathon I've ever run because I wasn't thinking about myself at all. I was just interested in guiding William to what he wanted in terms of a successful finish. Uh, and so it was great. It was a good day. He had some problems. Uh, well, let me, let me quote William. He said it was a great race except for the bombs because William and I crossed the finish line after a remarkable burst of energy and commitment that he needed to draw upon to run the last mile right on Hereford left on Boston. 
we ran that last mile, we crossed the line and we're still standing there gasping when the bombs went off right behind us. So we were there, um, at the, at the moment of the Boston marathon, very close to it. I don't ever call myself a survivor of the Boston marathon cause I wasn't hurt. I wasn't mm-hmm. really in danger. I was far enough away, yeah. but it certainly was an interesting thing to be there. And, and that sort of uh, is the first chapter of my book. I talk about how all that happened and the effect it had later. Yeah. It's a uh, incredible, uh, incredible event. And, and just, um, I don't know, just so, you know, so disturbing that people would, would, you know, make the choice to try to, uh, ruin something that's, you know, such a triumph, you know, that people are able to, to do this. Yeah, that's the, getting into that and their motivations and who they were and why they did it is a whole other thing. So, you yeah, know, it, yeah. It, it, I was just interested in like how it was affecting my friends and the people I had run with and the other people on team of the vision and Josh Warren and all mm-hmm. those other guys. It's amazing how, how narrow your focus is when you're in the middle of one of those things. Yeah. So t- tell me about guiding. So, um, are you tethered? And, uh, yeah, and if not, how do you, how do you do it? No, it depends entirely on the preference, uh, of the person you're guiding. I mean, you're there for them. So you do what makes them comfortable in Warren's case. His blindness is interesting. He has what's called cortical blindness. His eyes are fine. They're physically all right, but he had a brain injury due to a traffic accident when he was younger that, that smashed kind of his visual cortex in the back of his head, the rear part of the brain. And that meant that his eyes just don't work that well in terms of him being able to figure out what he's seeing. Uh, It's very hard for him to describe because obviously he doesn't know what it's like for other people to be able to see. And so it's it's describing his own interior sort of process. But it's the way I understand it is he has to figure out what he's looking at. Yeah, that that's a little bit true true of me as well. That's similar. So, so I don't have the same thing. I mean, I, my, I have retinitis pigmentosa, so my problem is with my eyes, but it is the case that as my eyesight has gotten worse and worse, it's, it's similar to what you described. In other words, I will like, if, if you, um, saw me in my office where I'm sitting now, uh, I might even be able to fool you that I'm not blind walking around and doing things. And it's not just that I've memorized where things are, although that's certainly part of it. But part of it is when I look at my desk, I know it's my desk. When I look at the can of peanuts on my desk, I know it's the can of peanuts on my desk and it looks like a can of peanuts to me. But if I go into your office and you have a can of peanuts on the desk, I will glance at it and then I'll have to like stare at it and think and try to kind of logic out uh, what it is. Um, And, you know, I've had, you know, sometimes to the point of of absurdity where like, you know, I'm at the uh, airport and I go to put a soda in the trash can, but it's not a trash can. It's a small boy's head, you know, (laughs) but I thought there would be a trash can there from some vague memory I had. And then there was something that was approximately the height and shape of a trash can. And so I assumed that that was a trash can I was putting the, the soda into. And, and so, um, so I, I, I feel his pain. Right. <laughs> and, and because of that, he, what he wanted that day was he didn't want to be tethered. He finds that restricting. It is hard to run when you're holding onto a cable or cord. Um, he just wanted me to be there to warn him because mm-hmm. his greatest fear was running into something yeah. that he didn't know was there or tripping mm-hmm. tripped at a, at a, at a prior race and bang himself up. You, you know how scary it is if you trip, right. and you're not ready for it and you can't catch yourself. Yep. Um, so basically on that particular day, what he wanted me to do, and I think this is how he treats his other guys. He doesn't always run with a guy. He, he was, he was a little nervous because Boston is, is fairly crowded and a big deal mm-hmm. and wanted to do well. So he asked for a guy. Um, is he wanted me to run slightly ahead of him and to his left. Cause that was where his best peripheral vision was uh-huh. and just let him know if anything were coming up. 
which of course you don't only have to do. There are very few turns in the Boston Marathon, and there was nothing wrong with the pavement. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it, but mainly my my job ended up just being sort of keeping him company uh-huh. and helping him get through some problems. When he started getting some stomach cramps, he had to find a porta potty. I was I was very useful in finding the porta potties, yeah. making sure they were ready for him. But mainly, I was just his companion for what ended up being a pretty tough day. Yeah. Tough day that I said he ended heroically by putting yeah. aside his discomfort and fatigue and running that last mile. Right. The, um, it's uh, yes, I can tell you as a, as a general matter that the number one irritation of being blind is not being able to find the bathroom because it's just so awkward and then you have to ask people and nobody wants to have that conversation. It's it's uh, uh, number two is not knowing when people are putting out their hand to shake. Um, the, those are, those are the big two. You know, I mean, I mean, I will admit those are the big two because we live in a wonderful world full of wonderful people and amazing technology. So that you know, Uber drivers drive me around and I don't have you know the fact that I can't drive is like no longer even a negative. I think a lot of my friends who do drive should just sell their cars and take over, you know? And, and so, um, but, you know, given, given the conditions that, uh, that we're lucky enough to live in, in, in places like Chicago, uh, those turn out to be the, uh, the two biggest inconveniences, but the, um, uh, but that's, uh, that's super. So, so did you have to keep looking behind you to, to see that he was, um, staying close? Yeah, well, I, I did. I mean, it was an interesting day. Part of another reason I didn't have to have time to think about my own discomfort or fatigue was just, I was constantly aware of where he was, what he was running into. I was afraid, um, that people, you know, there, as I'm sure you are aware of, uh, there are people who, there are things that people expect you to do because they assume you can see, right. Like, get out of their way or yes. something. And I was very, very, very cautious about making sure that, you know, like, like here's, here's a classic thing. And this comes up every time I've guided, which I've done four times, somebody's running ahead of you mm-hmm. and they stop uh, yeah. tired. They got a cramp. Yeah. They start walking. And nobody even thinks about it. Everybody assumes, well, I'm going to stop and yeah, people go behind me. me will see me and run around me. Yeah. Well, some people can't see you. So right. I was very conscious of that. If somebody, I was like, oh, wait, stop, blind runner coming, mm-hmm. I'd alert them or whatever I could do. So yeah, I was very, 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 I remember being very, very attuned to, to William that day and his needs. Um, I should say that the next year, 2014 and 2015, both I guided another guy named Eric Manser, who has. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I know Eric. Yeah, I believe you're the same. The yeah, same exactly. Guy. Eric has similar vision, vision problems to me. Yep. Very similar story. Lost his vision gradually, but increasingly over the years. Um, and he, he who can see far less than William could, did did ask for a tether. Uh-huh. But he also had his particular things. He wanted me to run on his left. Mm-hmm. He he wanted to be warned. Uh, again, I think this is something you can relate to. He told me that because of his problem with his vision, what were to me mere shadows would be to him the lights going out. Interesting. He was yeah. very sensitive to yeah. that, the change in gradation of light. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to be warned whenever we went, for example, under a bridge. Uh-huh. I would never have noticed that it was slightly dimmer because I wasn't thinking about it. Yeah, right. Your eyes adjust so fast. Yeah. Yeah. And so he really wanted me to, like, that's something I had to do for him. Let him know if we're coming, I say, coming up under a bridge, and he'd say, got it. Or actually, what he's loved to say was sweet. And then he'd be ready for when the lights went out two seconds later. So everybody has their own needs. Yeah. They, um, tell me, um, 
tell me more about why the book of running is incomplete. I mean, obviously I am well aware of the publishing industry, uh, you know, uh, kind of meme of the complete book of such and such. And so it's a witty, it's a witty title to be the incomplete book, but did you have something else in mind besides just saying, well, I, I had a very specific thing in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're right. There is a, there is a, a, a literary trope, the complete book of this complete book of that. I yeah. don't know if it was started by this book, but it certainly was perhaps the, the biggest first example back around 1980. I don't know, maybe perhaps a year or two earlier, a writer named Jim, Jim Fix, Fix, right? With the double X wrote a book <laughs> called there's two legs in the cover. Exactly. Those are his legs, by the way, uh-huh. uh, the author's own. And, uh, it's called the complete book of running. And it was this Bible for the running boom at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 70s running boom, which has been immortalized in, among other places, the movie, um, uh, oh, come on, Forrest Gump. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, and I read that book growing up. In fact, I read that book long before I ever started running. And, and it became kind of like this, I won't say guide, but kind of like almost like Bible. Like, yeah. oh my gosh, if, if I just do this thing, I will receive all these blessings. It was a, kind of an evangelical work. You feel better. You get to eat more, which I enjoyed doing. You get to have better sex, which I hope to someday at that point. I, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if this applies to you, but, but I, but I can literally picture that book in my parents' bookshelf and, and, and to our younger listeners, Peter and I are from a generation where like you just read all the crappy books your parents had around the house because yeah, that was all there was to read. Yes. You were just so thankful that it wasn't like a shampoo bottle, which was what you had to read half the time you were so desperate for reading material you'd be like oh wait there's some there's some sydney sheldon book that my parents hid in the basement maybe i can read oh my that. god Jeez, I, there's, that's something that we need to talk about all this all the incredibly dumb sort of sex pot boilers yeah. that we uh, all exactly jacqueline susan sex, <laughs> yeah I read, I read the valley of the dolls, valley of the dolls. when exactly. i was like 11 years old <laughs> Yes, exactly. That's the thing. We would read them at totally inappropriate ages. Right. And and what's funny is the young adult, the quality of young adult fiction is so much higher and they're so good at targeting each age and even like having the series of books where, I mean, obviously Harry Potter being the, the obvious example, but like so that the books kind of advance with the kid and everything that it's actually kind of hard to convince the kids to read adult books because they have these books that are perfectly tuned to their needs. And and as a parent, of course, you, you like want to give them this book that you love and that you may be at that age or maybe you read it a few years later but your kid's so much smarter than you are you're sure that they can handle it and uh and they're like wait i want to read you know uh you know uh, episode 12 in the in the southern vampire series or, or whatever you know <laughs> right it's yeah, it <laughs> anyway, this is a weird digression so yeah. my book was an homage to that book i see um but I, I i called it you know i didn't call it the other complete book of running or the even more complete book of running i mm-hmm. called it the incomplete book of running because i don't I'm very suspicious of anyone who claims to have all the knowledge about anything. Right. And I think, you know, I, I wanted to uh, approach the topic with, I thought, the requisite humility. I'm not an expert. I'm just a, a non-athletic middle-aged man who managed to find a way to have some success doing this rather simple activity. And mm-hmm. I've become, though, I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I don't know what to tell people about their injuries. I don't know a lot about nutrition. At least nothing technical. But I um, very much believe that running is very, very good for people, that everybody who can should do it, Mm -hmm. that it has advantages over other forms of exercise. You don't need any equipment. Mm -hmm. You do it outside, or at least you should. I hate um, treadmills. And that everybody can do it. You don't need any instruction. You knew how to run when you were a kid. You did it great. 
you know, of course, obviously I'm talking about people who aren't disabled for various uh, uh, injuries, that's of course, but most people can do it. And I find that doing it in addition to the health benefits, which are legion, which some of which uh, Jim Fix writes about in his book. And I mentioned Mm -hmm. in mine, um, is just good for you. It's especially the life that we live now. I'm sitting in my office. I'm sitting in front of a computer with two screens. I got my iPad next to me, mm-hmm. my phone next to that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be staring at these screens in my office doing my work. And then when I get up to go home, I'm probably going to put on my headphones and listen to maybe all things considered on the way home. Maybe I'll read from my iPad. Then when I get home, I'll turn on the TV or I'll make, well, I make dinner, you know, we're constantly staring at things, getting other input, sitting still. It's almost as if we only use our bodies to carry our heads around, to point them at screens. Mm-hmm. So I think given the kind of life all of us live, it's not only important to get exercise. It's important to engage your body before you engage your mind. It's important to do something that's, that's for lack of a better word, mindless. Mm -hmm. And I mean that in sort of the Zen sense, which is almost the same thing as being mindful, i.e. instead of distracting yourself from everything as people do all the time, you allow yourself to be in the moment. And that moment is running down a street Mm -hmm. or along a path or by a lake or wherever you happen to be. And I think that is that kind of meditative moment is something we all used to do all the time. Remember mm-hmm. being bored? Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> people used to be bored because it wasn't a farm to stare at. Yeah. Um, and you need that. That's the thing. We think, oh, God, it's boring. No, it's really important that you just let yourself think. I, I believe it was the, uh, the great funkster George Clinton who said, free your ass and your mind will follow. Exactly. <laughs> free your legs and your mind will follow. Exactly. Do, um, do you have a new book project you're working on? I don't. I've pitched a new book to my editor. I'm waiting to get to see what he thinks. I probably should get back in touch with him. But no, I, I'm going to be doing some other kinds of writing. I'm doing a profile of a friend of mine for Chicago Magazine. Mm-hmm. But I hope to. I, I'm one of those people who's always a little restless and always wants to do the next thing and wonder what the next thing is. And so I'm, I'll come up with something. I usually well, do. Well, let's talk about, about uh, screenwriting. So I, I understand that you wrote the legendary film Dirty Dancing. I did not write the legendary film Dirty Dancing. I couldn't resist. Uh, That was a wonderful woman named Eleanor or something. I could look it up who wrote that novel about her own youth going to Jewish Mm -hmm. camps. Uh, Jewish summer yeah. camps. Jewish camps is well. well this phrase. is the classic. Camps, this is the, one of the greatest jokes of all time. Sarah Silverman said, uh, so, "You know, uh, uh, Jewish summer camp, the second worst kind of camp for Jews." <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to say her name is Eleanor Bergstrom. Is that right? I don't oh, know. Anyway, she's a wonderful writer, and it's a wonderful movie. I didn't write that. Mm-hmm. I wrote a movie called that was originally when I wrote it called Cuba mine. It was a, it was a romance set at the moment of the triumph of the, um, of triumph of the Cuban revolution in 1959. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, uh, that movie, Eleanor Bergstein was her name, Eleanor Bergstein. And that movie, uh, that I wrote called Cuba mine was, I, I mean, they paid me for it and then they ignored me cause that's how mm-hmm. it works in Hollywood. You don't own your copyright. You sell yeah. it. Uh, and then some years later I got a phone call saying that that script had been completely rewritten mm-hmm. and was now dirty dancing to Havana nights. Yeah. Uh, so if you ever go, if you get out, I'm sure everybody has one, your DVD copy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Of, uh, for, for like, a, a, like the third or fourth rewatch. Exactly. Exactly. You're looking at, look in the, um, 
on the cover or the credits in the back and you will see, it'll say story by somebody and Peter Sagan. Hmm. And the reason I don't know the name of the somebody, I guess I can look it up here. Let me do it here. Uh, yeah. Thank heaven for IMDb. Um, IMDb um, is the reason that uh, I don't remember the name is it's a pseudonym and it's a pseudonym ah. for, uh, I think the name of yeah, Kate Gunzinger. Mm-hmm. Yes, Kate Gunzinger. Who was Kate Gunzinger <laughs> who shared story credit with mm-hmm. me? Kate Gunzinger is a pseudonym for Eleanor Bernstein. Oh, wow. Why did she have a pseudonym? Because there's this bizarre process that screenwriters know about. Mm-hmm. There's money at stake in who gets credit for writing, literally who gets in the credits for writing a movie. And so therefore that process is, is, is a subject to sometimes very difficult negotiations and argument between people who have various claims. I did this rewrite and I added these important elements. Therefore I should get credit. Well, no, but I did the next Mm -hmm. rewrite and I changed all of those. So I should get Mm -hmm. credit. And after all of that was done for dirty dancing Two Havana nights, it was decided that, um, I would get story credit because I was the one who came up with the setting of Cuba mm-hmm. in 1959 and the main characters, the young girl, her lover, her parents, whatever. Uh, and, but the movie's plot is so similar to the original movie, dirty dancing uh-huh. that they decided it was essentially a remake and thus the original writer should get credit. And the original writer, Eleanor Bernstein, I see. wanted she didn't want her, her name on that. She did I not see. want her name. This on is like, this is like Led, Led Zeppelin having to add Willie Dixon's name to, you know, some of their, uh, some of their. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> she had wanted nothing to do with it. And so she asked to use a pseudonym. So I am credited with a fictional person. Mm-hmm for coming up with the story for dirty dancing to it. I see. And, and, uh, and so, um, what do you think of the film? <laughs> um, it's a charming film. There's not a word in it that I, is that right? Just it literally so just Nobody says a thing huh. that I, that I am not responsible for a single line of dialogue. I'm vaguely responsible for the broad outlines of the plot, but it's very, very different from what I wrote. The movie I wrote originally had, had Castro in it, had Batista in it, had the CIA, had soldiers, had fights, had bombings. It was based on the history of the Cuban revolution, which is an amazing story that has never been adequately told. And they took all of that out and filled it up with a lot of dance. And so the point of the idea is sexy sexy Latin dancing is is sexy Latin dancing. The dancing was great and the music is great. So, you know, It's fine. They, and I got to go to the premiere and I'm very happy. And, and, but, and so it's interesting though, that the person who wrote all those words, you would have thought they would all have shared story credit. Oh, I see. Cause this is story by, they have screenplay credit. Is that, is that the distinction I'm missing? Yeah. yeah. Ah. So the, the two other people have screenplay credit cause they're the people who took my, um, screenplay, rewrote mm-hmm. it and changed it into the actual movie, dirty dancing. Event. I see. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty, there's, I think there's a line about, uh, is it, I, I may have it backwards. I think it's, uh, Fitzgerald, uh, uh, it asks Hemingway whether he should go and like work on a Hollywood script because they'll give him all this money. And Hemingway says something like, you know, drive across the country, drive across Nevada. When you get to the California border, stop before the border, throw the script over the border, have them throw the suitcase full of money across the border to you and then drive home. Um, yes. Although I did not get a suitcase. <laughs> Uh, that is, uh, that is, it's a, it's a very strange business. And, and if you're a writer who 
was led to believe that the writer's vision is important and must be respected, that you are the progenitor of everything, stay the hell out of Hollywood, because that's not how they treat writers. Interesting. So w- would you, uh, if you, if you had a great screenplay idea, would you play again, or, or would you, or you like that? I don't know. I mean, I, I, let me put it this way. I, 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 at this point, movies and TV have gotten so fantastically good, I don't know if I can compete with those guys anymore. Um, I mean, uh, as you may or may not know, I did a companion podcast for the TV series Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. And I got to know the guy who wrote and created that, a guy named Craig Mazin. And the expertise and brilliance of that, and that's a fairly traditional kind of story. I'm not even talking about stuff that's really out there and brilliant, like, say, the recent Watchmen on mm-hmm. HBO. That's, I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I think, you, you know, it's, it's a little bit like saying, oh, you know, you, you used to play golf pretty well. Do you think you could join the tour? <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe if I had spent the intervening um, 20 years practicing every day, maybe I'd be good enough to do it. I, I had an interesting conversation. My, my brother's a history professor and one of his good friends is a literature professor. And, uh, and I was visiting him and, and, um, and I was talking to her and I uh, attempted to make the case that the, um, uh, that that the writers of t- that that many more uh, great books are being you know let's just say uh, novels many more great novels are being produced now uh, you know per year or per decade whatever than you know fifty or hundred or hundred and fifty years ago and uh, uh, she did not find this convincing and I was like well like let's just think about this we've got you know we've got ten times as many people as they did and we're way richer so we probably have a hundred times more people who have the leisure time uh, to write a novel. Um, and we know all their tricks, right? We get to like read Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, 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 and then uh, see all the clever things they did, plus clever things that have been thought of by people since then, plus clever things you think of yourself. So you get, you get all these huge advantages. Now, that's not to say that there's lots of writers today that are better than Hemingway and Fitzgerald. It's to say that we're cherry picking Hemingway and Fitzgerald, you know, as like, you know, the, the two. That's true of that era. When you look back on, on classic literature, you're choosing, you know, yeah. One of the things that's randomly about picking is how many terrible movies there were in the golden age of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We just don't remember them because they were bad. Exactly. There, there's a. We just, sorry, go ahead. You know, the year, let's say, Some Like It Hot came mm-hmm. out, there were 200 movies that were totally f- forgettable and terrible. But, that's true. There's another thing, mm-hmm. though, which is that uh, the people you mentioned, Hemingway, Fitzgerald, other people you could mention, Thomas right. Wolfe, say, they all have something in common, which is that they're all white yes. guys. And only white guys were allowed to be serious writers. So, so I, I thought this was going to get me over the hump in this, right? This is, I read an essay when I was a kid by, uh, uh, when I was, when I was young and, and, and truly, truly nerdy, even nerdier than I am today. Uh, my favorite writer was the science fiction and science writer, Isaac Asimov. And he wrote an essay called, uh, I think it was called something like the judo arguments. And what he described as a judo argument was an argument that, that played the role that, you know, in judo, you sort of use your opponent's movements and weight yes. against them and, and to use your opponent's uh, strong arguments. And I thought, I'm going to win this argument with my brother's friend because I'm going to make exactly that point. I'm going to say, look, obviously the writing's better today because we have all this diversity, but not, you know, you know, gender, race, various kinds of orientation and, and, and just from all around the world. We have wonderful writers from, from Africa, from India, from China. You know, it's, it's uh, incredible. And, um, and, and I thought she was going to have to cave because I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm taking the academician. I mean, obviously in a sense, I'm an academician, but in not in that sphere. Um, and I'm, I'm taking the kinds of arguments that at least by reputation, uh, those people find especially appealing 
and I'm going to use it uh, uh, to win this. And uh, she still wouldn't give it to me. So, um, <laughs> I mean, she granted that was the point. I, I'm not saying she didn't admit that was a good point on 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 your part and mine. Uh, but 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 in the end, she she still uh, was for say I, I and and look, I see. I think that the, the, the one of the phenomena that screws us up is that, um, in fact, I'm going to give you a tip here to uh, as to how to write uh, the best book in the world. Okay. There's a trick. Okay. And here's the trick that, uh, what happens is in order for people to think of your book as one of the best books ever, or the best book of the decade or the year, the Pulitzer prize winner, et cetera. Um, what needs to happen is that they know that other people think it's awesome, right? Almost no one has enough self-confidence to say, this is one of the best books ever. And if everybody else disagrees with me, I'm right and they're wrong, right? So the question is, how do you win uh, a prize? How do you win a Pulitzer or how do you win the book of the decade prize or whatever? And uh, have you ever read um, Shadow Country by Peter Matheson? You read this book? It's no, an incredible book. Incredible, incredible. Right? He's an amazing guy, right? Because he both wrote nonfiction. He wrote the book Blue Water, White Death, which, you know, inspired the book Jaws. Um, and he also uh, wrote and many other important, you know, nonfiction books. And then he wrote these great novels. Well, so he wrote this book called Killing Mr. Watson, which was a novelization of a real life incident in which like the richest man in this area of Southwest Florida called the 10,000 Islands uh, basically pulled up to the dock in his little motorboat, got out and like 40 people all walked up to him and shot him dead simultaneously. Yes. Right. I, I know this story right. for reasons that are too complicated and, to and explain, even though I've never read Killing so, Mr. Watson. So then he wrote uh, two sequels to, to Killing Mr. Watson. And then he decided that he hadn't done it right. That these should not be like three, 350 page books. It should be one 850 page book in which he wrote like 200 new pages and took, you know, 400 old pages out and combined them together into one perfect book. And he said, you know, this is going to take me, you know, like six months and then I'll be done. It took him 10 years. But when it came out, everybody knew that book kicked ass because everybody had read, you know, all the, 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 you know, Toot Le Monde. I mean, not that I read them. What did I know? But you know, the people who pay attention to this stuff had all read these books and knew they were awesome. So then he swept everything, the book of the year, the book of the five, there's like a book for the last five years. There's a book of 10 years, right? Um, another example is, um, uh, a visit from the goon squad by Jennifer Egan, which is a wonderful book, right? But basically she had published a series of stories in the New Yorker and other places that everybody knew were incredible. So then when the book finally came, came out with all these interlinked stories, it was easy for people to say, yeah, we all know that's great. So my advice to you is, you know, find a way to either publish your book first in pieces, you know, your next book, um, or publish it or, or go redo the incomplete book of running after everybody's realized how great it is and reissue it. And then, you know, when, when the Pulitzer, you know, the nonfiction Pulitzer for that, um, you get the idea. I do. I appreciate the yeah, advice. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, my point being about the books of today, since we haven't all really reached consensus, you know, it's like we finally got around to uh, reaching consensus that uh, Infinite Jest was really great, right? It's, you know, like 30 years right. since that book came out, right? It's and, and, and so the problem is, since you don't know, you don't have that sense of consensus, it, you look like a fool if you take a book that came out 18 months ago and say, oh, this book is as good as, uh, you know, The Old Man in the Sea, which I don't even think was that good. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, so that's, um, you know, so that's Hence our, hence our bias towards the past. All right. Uh, enough of my crazy um, uh, theorizing. Um, what have I, so we've, let's see, we've covered, we've covered screenwriting. We've covered uh, books or at least your most recent book. Um, we talked a little about your radio career, any other aspects and, and obviously the running and guiding uh, any other aspects of your Renaissance man life that we should, uh, that we should be talking about with the, uh, the audience. 
I don't think I've got anything left. We got it all. All right. Well, I have a couple of questions. Um, I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time. We have a couple of questions that I'd like to, um, uh, uh, to finish up with. So, and I'll, I'll tell you both of them so you can, you know, ponder them uh, as, as, um, uh, as you're answering the other. Uh, so one is I like to ask for a book recommendation because basically I lost my sight and for a long time I just couldn't read books. Um, so I read lots of stuff online and everything because, you know, you can make the computer read out loud to you. And then eventually they created, and then a few years later I discovered uh, this service called Bookshare that is a, an amazing service uh, for books for the blind and uh, any blind listeners out there, if you're not using Bookshare and Voice Dream Reader, uh, check it out. Go to DangerousVision.com. I explain how all this stuff works. It's, it's unbelievable. So the upshot is um, there's a zillion great books that I don't know about because I sort of had this big chunk of my life where I didn't get to read books. So that's going to be question one. And then question two is going to be um, uh, that uh, I just, I, you know, I realize that I'm not a skillful enough interviewer to elicit people's very best stories. So I just say uh, to people, tell me your best story. Like, what's the story that you want to tell? If you, if you had to, you know, entertain an audience for, you know, three or five minutes and, uh, and, and, you know, you by telling them a story related to your life, what would you tell? So uh, you can do them in either order. Well, uh, I'll take them in order. Um, I'm going to recommend a book. I never can recommend, I never, you know, if anybody asks me to like, recommend a book, I always try to recommend one that they haven't mm-hmm. read because, you know, what's the point otherwise, which means it's got to be obscure. Okay. I often recommend The Golden Gate by Vikram Seth, okay. spelled S-E-T-H, which is an amazing book, came out many years mm-hmm. ago. And it's a novel about people in San Francisco having life, love, and other adventures, but it's all told in sonnets, huh. which is That's amazing. Incredible. Um, but right now, I mean, you said earlier in our conversation that you think people love things because they're confident that everybody else loves mm-hmm. them. And that's true. We're all much more subject to uh, the crowd, the mob, the wisdom mm-hmm. of the crowd than we think we are. We like to think we're individuals. Anybody who's named a child, some wonderful distinct name that they thought they came up with <laughs> when that child was five <laughs> in their kindergarten class knows what that's about. But at the same time, there is some pride in being the only person who knows about something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to choose to recommend probably Philip Roth's most obscure and unjustly forgotten novel. I had just reread the plot against America, yeah, which made that, me think of that was a great book. one. The plot against America is now going to be a mini series on HBO. So I reread ah. it cause I'm doing a project with them. Um, he wrote a book, Philip Roth in the late sixties called the great American novel. Mm-hmm. That's its title. Interesting. And, and it is the funniest novel ever written about baseball. Oh, wow. And if you read this novel, which is so fantastically imaginative and funny and strange and whimsical, um, you're kind of amazed that the author of that book ever did anything else but run, but, but, but write fantastically funny, uh, imaginative novels. It's sort of like, it's kind of hard to describe. It's sort of to the sports book, what in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is to science fiction. Um, and I, and I just can't recommend it enough. And I love turning people on yeah. that book, the great American novel by Philip That's fantastic. I, I've read, you know, a number of Roth books, although, uh, not as many, I haven't read them all, which is, you know, already sort of, um, uh, clearly a, a deficiency on my part because all the ones I've read, I've loved. And then I still haven't gotten around to reading them all. You know, I still have this stupid thing where I'll, I'll be like, uh, you know, cause I grew up reading a lot of science fiction and fantasy and things like that. And then, um, and, and, and then there would be these books that I would think of as like school books, right? Like they're, they're, they're the books they make you read. And so then I never read them for pleasure. And I did 
didn't read them in college. I managed to, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> when you're when you're a math major at Harvard, they they don't. Uh, you can basically skip out of the history and literature because there's no math in the core, so you get like two two freebies in terms of two wild cards as to what you skip. So I like or so I like skipped all the literature stuff, and um, and then uh, just in the last ten years when I recovered the ability to read through voice, I read all these books like The Great Gatsby. And I'm like, this book is awesome. <laughs> no wonder they've tried to force us to read it. It's great. <laughs> and, um, you know, so, but, but what's weird to me, what's truly weird is even when I read a book, um, so, so I'll like put off reading literary books, right? And, uh, like, like I put off for years reading uh, the, uh, the, the corrections, right? Um, uh, and, and then when I finally did read it by, you know, Jonathan Franzen, of course, for, for our listeners, if they haven't, uh, you know, if they're younger and, and aren't aware of the corrections, when I finally uh, read it because a friend of mine said it was her favorite book, I'm like, all right, I guess I got to read this book. It was magnificent. It was so great. And yet, like, people say his book Freedom is just as good. And I haven't gotten around to reading that one yet. I'm like, why am I, you know, so I, I got, I got life is short in the Twitter. <laughs> Let me, l- l- I, I kind of need to go. Yeah. So let me quickly finish by telling you, I, it's hard for me to come up with a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, it's a little bit like somebody coming up and saying, tell yeah. a joke, and you're like, jokes. Uh, it is jokes. a little unfair of me. But if maybe you'll tell a story and I'll think of one. <laughs> but I will tell you uh, something, an anecdote, maybe, mm-hmm. which actually is an anecdote about anecdotes. Many, many years ago, and I like to share this with people, a friend of mine said something to me kind of casually, but it ended up being the, the way I sort of live my life. He said to me, always... Uh, evaluate any potential activity in terms of its future anecdotal value. Mm. So in other words, is it going to be a good story? Yep. It's going to be a good story. Go do it. Yep. And that seems to be a very fine way of living one's life. And I've been doing it ever since. I, uh, I, I love it. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it's taken you in so many interesting directions that have brought so much joy to all of us. So uh, thank you for doing all the things you've done, Peter. And thank you so much for joining us today on the Dangerous Vision Podcast. My pleasure. Next week on Dangerous Vision, a new job takes Cyrus Habib in a new direction, from politics to the priesthood. You know what? You can think about poverty, you can think about chastity, you can think about obedience. It's not easy. You've been listening to the Dangerous Vision Podcast, a production of the Massachusetts Association for the Blind and Visually Impaired. I'm David Brown.